0: All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fuck nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark maron This is my podcast. Barry Levinson is on the show today. This is a very big day. Barry Levinson, a brilliant screenwriter and brilliant director, Oscar winning director of Rain Man, Diner, The Natural, Bugsy, Good Morning Vietnam. He wrote for the Carol Burnett show. He co created Homicide, Life on the Street, and Oz. He and his wife at the time wrote And uh, Justice for All, which I watched the other night. Great fucking movie. He's the executive producer of the new documentary Stars and Strife. And he's got a past at the comedy store. And for those of you who listen to me know that's, you know, I got to know about that. How does he fall into the uh, grand history of the comedy store? Barry Levinson. We've been meaning to talk for a while, I think. I don't know if he knew that, but I know that we've been meaning to talk for a while. Hey, so I had Allie Brosh on this show a long time ago because I was so taken with her book, Hyperbole and a Half, and she's written a new book. It's been like seven years. Many of us were concerned about her well-being, but this is sort of coming off me kind of traversing the, the terrain of my mind and my heart, and my spirit and it doesn't generally go anyplace good it it amplifies the struggle all right look it's we're all compromised right now and if you're alone you got to be careful up there in your head it, i mean come on it's a dangerous place and if you got no one to kind of say like yo hey 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 you can't rely on television for the oh oh whoa where are you going what are you up to? All television does, or whatever you're distracting yourself does, is like, all right, let's just think about this now. This is what's happening now. But occasionally you need a little of the, whoa, 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 back up. What, what, what? You need that. But, anyways, Brosh, Ali Brosh, is one of the great sort of explorers and navigators of the mind and how it relates to the outside world. And she's got a new book out called solutions and other problems. She works within animation but her writing is tremendous and funny and dark and intuitive and uh revealing and and somehow um calming. You know, if you got a dark mind and a and a, a damaged soul and a bit of a dark heart, she's a she'll soothe it, man. So, you know, if you want to check that out, this is an unsolicited plug for this fucking book because I love this woman so much and I love her work. Solutions and Other Problems by Ali Brosh. It'll make you feel better, maybe. Maybe. What could make us feel better? Now, like, I mean, are we, this is a theme of my life, you know, like, you know, kind of pushing back on hucksters and grifters and which is one of the reasons that obviously this president is in outside of being insanely fascistic and dangerous and you know, kind of homicidally negligent on a mass scale. It's the grift, man. It's the con. It's the hustle. You know, it's this one part of the backbone of America, man. It's a fucked up thing. Like, I finally figured out a way that, you know, troll culture doesn't bother me. It's like. These fucking Trump trolls, it's like if this this is what you're proud of, this is what you're you know, this is who you are. This is you know, this is your voice in the world. Trump 2020. Fuck you, libtard. That's your voice in the world. That's your creativity. That's how you speak. Your heart It's just this weird belligerent script of garbage that you dump out of your fucking brain. Fucked head. You know, out into the fucking world, your sort of shameless, unapologetic loyalty and complete submission and, you know, a a, a surrender of your entire sense of self to a fucking belligerent grifter who offers you nothing but the feeling of hate. It gives it definition. That's who you are. That's your lack of creativity. That's what you do with your American spirit, where you have the freedom to find something for yourself, to carve out your own life, to figure out how you fit in and be part of the fucking cultural fabric, you unimaginative turds. So I watched Being There the other night. That was great. It actually holds up. It's a beautiful movie. Shirley MacLaine, Peter Sellers, unbelievable. Just throwing that out there had a dream had a dream. I had a, a dream the other night. and I guess at some point I have to start looking at these as visits from my uh, my ex who passed away May 16th. Lynn did Lynn Shelton. beautiful spirit, beautiful person, but occasionally she visits me in dreams. And I wake up and I'm always upset. But, I, you know, I have to frame it with a certain amount of gratitude that, you know, she's still hanging out. She's still coming by. But the dream I had the other night was powerful in that it, it, it's almost it, it almost it was a visit, I think. They are visits when you lose somebody and they come around, depending on what happens, if it's fairly clear. And the dreams I've had about her have been clear. They're usually just like she's here and I'm like, oh, my God, I thought you were dead. And she's not. And I wake up and she is. But this one, I it was just, she was just sitting on the edge of a desk, like facing, I feel like it was a classroom, but I don't know if there was anyone there or it was empty or what, but she was looking out and I approached her and she just was like not paying attention to me. And I said, hey, hey, you remember that you love me, right? And then she turned to me, she's like, Yes, of course. And I said, Well, you were you were you were dead. And I started to cry. And I'm like, You were dead for like days. You were dead. And I'm crying. And she said to me, Oh, that must have been very traumatic for you. I'm sorry. And I just was crying and I said, I love you so much. And I woke up. And um, that is what she would have said. <laughs> mm. Happy to see her. Look, you guys, this was a, a a great conversation that I had with Barry Levinson. You know, he, he he looks great. He's like eighty. He's holding up. He's lucid. He looks sixty, and he's uh you know he's he's done some big movies and he's been around a long time. And it was a real pleasure and an honor to talk to him. Uh, The documentary that he executively executively produced, (laughs) the doc that he executive produced, Stars and Strife, is now available on most video on-demand platforms, and it just started running this week on Stars. This is me talking to uh, Barry Levinson.
1: Where are you, Barry? I'm in uh, LA now.
0: Oh, yeah? So you're- uh... Yeah. Hold up, trying yes. to
1: breathe. Uh, it's terrible. I'm. Uh, <clears throat> I've been having trying to clear my throat all morning. It's. I mean, this is uh, horrific.
0: Yeah, it's like it's devastating in the way where like uh, it's just one layer of garbage uh, over another.
1: I know. There doesn't <laughs> seem
0: to be, you know, I, I there just doesn't seem to be a bottom to it.
1: No, it's uh, every day there is another uh, another thing to get depressed about. Right off the bat, right off the bat, boom, the president of the United States is basically saying, yeah, well, maybe, you know, two to three million people, you know, should die. But then things are going to be good and the stock market will just be great.
0: It's uh, it, I can't it, it really is daunting uh, on a day to day basis no. uh, in terms of like uh, there's and I, I watched uh, I watched your documentary, the one you produced, The Stars and Strife. And then I've watched uh, I just watched The Social Dilemma last night. Yeah. watch. Have you watched that? I
1: haven't, I haven't seen that one yet. No.
0: I think for people like my age and your age and these different generations, that really, you know, to really sort of wrap your brain around the uh, the weaponized uh, social networking platform, the algorithms and how they fuck people's brains, it's like it's it, it's it's not hopeful. There, there's no hope yeah. there, but I mean, it does help you understand really what's going on. Cause I think it's a generational thing. I think to protect yourself from these, to actually protect yourself from uh, the mind fucking, it's a lot, it's a lot trickier than we think. And it, and it has to do with the technologies that, you know, we've had to adapt to in our lifetime and the kids don't give a shit. So it's sort no. of, I don't know whose job it is because these machines are just running on their own volition. It's uh,
1: it, it, it it's, it's scary on so many levels because it's hard to, Uh, when you read certain statistics and you go uh, for instance there was someone sent me an email the other day that um, I think it's like uh, high school students like 40 or 50% never heard of the Holocaust just as an example and you go uh, how's that possible? I mean just, you know, it's not like you have to understand all of the things, but how is that possible that you don't know that it's just a piece of information?
0: Right. Right.
1: And, and so if you say that you don't know that, then you're you're saying, what don't you know about now? How much about now that you don't it doesn't register in your brain? That, yeah. That's what frightens me.
0: It's an elaborate shallowness that there there's a you know that people don't yeah. know things in depth or that you know it's sort of like you know like i could see a younger person saying like wait hitler was the guy with the mustache right and that's the depth right you know <laughs> yeah
1: yeah he was that's right he had the yeah and yeah that was it yeah
0: yeah. But uh and also being like a Jew, it's like, you know, that's then there's that whole other dimension. It's like, when do we have to leave? Are, is anyone going to know? <laughs> <laughs> is, is someone going to alert us all? <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, pack pack yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and i i can't help but think about that shit you know i thought about it right away you know at the beginning of it with all that fascist theater of him signing things and bannon sitting there i'm like you know i know you know we're not going to be the first to go but you know we're on the list
1: <laughs> yeah i know that is frightening it is <laughs> it's overwhelming and, and and at the same time you know it's you know, there used to be like you could say satire. And it's hard to have satire when things are this crazy. You know, what I mean, uh it, it's literally I I think we're getting close to the Marx brothers with Fredonia. Okay. That, I, I think that's where we're going in a sense, where nothing makes any sense at
0: all. Nothing makes any sense at all. And and that is the nation's song, and there's a proud it's a pride to it. Yeah, things have become the farce of of reality has sort of uh hijacked any capacity for satire because satire gets absorbed very quickly it's it, and it's very it's very hard to do it effectively that where it will have any impact i mean if you think about your movie you know wag the dog which i think still obviously will hold up but uh but like everything's moving so much quicker how do you satirize you know what's going on because he's he's his own buffoon i mean that's it's 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 a very strange thing that the president is a clown you yes. know to most of us but it's like you it, it's hard to to do anything funny about him because you don't want to trivialize the horror show that's happening.
1: Uh, yes and you can't actually do something funny about him because he's 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 that already that crazy so you can't it's th- hard. there's no way to go with a parody because that's him. Yeah. We watch him on a day-to-day basis.
0: Yeah. I find myself watching older comedies just to enjoy, you know, uh, back in the day when there was timing and there was uh, jokes and stuff. Like, and I'm not really that guy, but lately I'll go, I'll I'll watch, uh, I'll watch the old comics on on Johnny on YouTube. I'll watch uh, Rickles, uh, Buddy Hackett, Dangerfield. I'll just, you know, just to hear that timing, you know, just to see that work.
1: Uh, But that was a real craft. Oh, of know, course, it was a craft. And now, now we're in something, I don't even know how I, I it'll take maybe another 50 years that somebody could define this era that we're in. And I,
0: I, I, find that so helpful when people say, you know, history will show. And I'm like, you're counting, that's optimistic that there's going yeah. to be history <laughs> number one and number two, whoever's writing it is going to be of a, of a sound mind.
1: Yeah, no, look, I thought that the comment in, uh, in David's piece in Stars and Stripes, is about that a democracy? The longest a democracy has uh, lasted is 250 years, and we are now up to 250 <laughs> years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a, it, it's a frightening thought that that's as long as a democracy has ever lasted, and we're yeah. right up there at that point, and we are facing this kind of collision of of madness that we can't even get out of our own way and it's not just trump alone and i think that's where the documentary is so good because it's not it's not chasing just him it's just that we are so dysfunctional in general that we cannot actually work as a democracy at this point in time
0: right yeah and and it's just amazing how like uh how how many sort of craven fucking small-time grifters have uh, are having their day in one place <laughs> <laughs> right and then and the uh, the idea of capitalism you know when it uh, the, i think that the the focus seems to be in the doc that you know that that there is a way for capitalism to function uh, uh for everyone you know if it's done responsibly but I, the, my problem with a lot of that free market thinking is for some reason no one factors factors in the uh the greed element and the uh complete moral bankruptcy of people who who want money and power. But, you know, I don't know, maybe it'll level off.
1: You would hope, but I don't know, Uh, you know, because the bottom line is sort of down. Everything is about the bottom line. Yeah. You know, and and I don't know how that changes. I mean, uh, in terms of look, there is no crazier decision made by, say, uh, with Citizens United. Uh, it's, as a concept, you say, hey, why don't we just have this and then people can spend as much money as they want to donate to a, to a, a candidate, you know, just as much as you want. So if you want to donate a hundred million dollars for a candidate, yeah, that's that's fine. And you go, no, no, no. Doesn't that sort of mess with the concept of the people? Mm. Otherwise, the hundred million is there a very few people be, can donate that and therefore they're going to get something special they're going to get something that you're not going to get because right. they are spending a more money than you.
0: They own the guy and they yeah. own the
1: guy. And, yeah. and somehow that became like, Oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. And this comes from the Supreme court.
0: You yeah, they, I mean? they,
1: That's how you came up with something that idiotic. I, I just, it, it boggles my mind. I'm not some kind of, you know, uh, somebody that understands all of this kind of the legalities of things or whatever, but on, on the basic level, it makes no sense that you can spend as much money as you want.
0: Well, I think everybody's in their own bubble in terms of their decision making, including the Supreme court. Yeah. I, but yeah. let's get back to simpler times, Barry. Um, oh
1: yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when I was, a. uh, A doorman at the comedy store, you know, I, I got, I was, I was on a lot of drugs at the time, but it was in the late (laughs) eighties. And, uh, you know, I used to just fester and and look at all the names on the wall. And I just, I, I always saw your name on the wall and I'm like, what did he do here? Was he here? Cause I got very in, I was in deep at the comedy store. I, I, be, I believed in it. I believed in the idea of it. I, I thought that it was a magical place in a very dark way. And I really kind of focused on all the names on the walls, wondering, you know, how do they fit in? So how do you fit in over there?
1: Well, here's, here's the short version of that. Um, uh, when I was doing, um, uh, writing for say, uh, uh, the um, Carol Burnett show and other shows. I used to have a partner, Rudy DeLuca. And Rudy DeLuca uh, had uh, written for Sammy Shore. He'd write jokes for him. And uh, one day, Sammy Shore came to Rudy and said, Frank Sennis that has the old Suros, which had been closed at that point, and said, there's the small room, and he said, he'll turn it over to me. This was Sammy Shore talking. And uh, have a little nightclub. And Sammy said, uh, Rudy said to Sammy, uh, but nightclubs are dead. You know, Sammy, nightclubs are dead. It's over, or whatever. He said, yeah, but they'll, he'll give me the place and the little venue and I can blah, 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 whatever. And Rudy said to him, well, why don't you do it like the improv in New York? Just have that kind of place. And yeah. that
0: became the comedy store. And oh, so you, you, were, you were brought in before Mitzi even.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. But you know, he was Sammy he was married to Mitzi. Right. And, but she wasn't involved initially. Yeah. And so that was the beginning of the comedy store. And it used to be in the very beginning, you could just show up and you know, nobody's on stage and then you can go on stage and this person or sometimes, and then what happened is like Richard Pryor would wander in and he would get up and he would do something. And, and some of the more named uh you know guys and then some people off the street literally just went up etc and then it got more formalized as it went along and then what happened is in the divorce between sammy and Mitzi, uh sammy gave it off because he wasn't really he didn't have that uh, managerial quality that Mitzi had and she yeah. was much better at structuring it and everything else and then she ultimately took over and really ran it but were you doing it. stand-up I started when, uh, it sounds crazy. I started, I was in an acting group and, uh, which I didn't want to be an actor, but I was there anyhow. I was literally there just hanging around, uh, and just absorbing it. Which I, in one? Fact, I, didn't, I it was a guy named Jack Donner and it was on uh, the Oxford street right off of Santa Monica and Western. There was a uh-huh. little theater upstairs. And so I did that. I didn't really want to, um, when I came out to LA. I didn't know what to do with myself. I ended up at the beach.
0: You were you were from Baltimore. From
1: Baltimore, but you Drove but up. so
0: but like well, let's go back there for a minute. So, but you knew you wanted to be in show business. Had you done some work? What what was the situation in Baltimore other than what we know from uh, Avalon and Tin Men and you know,
1: like, No, I I didn't want to be in. I had no idea about show business. I didn't even have a clue. I had no, uh, never even thought about the idea of of writing or directing or anything. Nothing.
0: How old were you when you came
1: out here? I was um, around 22.
0: So what were you doing in Baltimore before?
1: I was in Washington, and I was working at a uh, uh, television station. Well,
0: that's show uh, business. Because,
1: well, and <laughs> if you think about it now. <laughs> but here's what happened. I was at this, I was at American University, and i I only took courses that would interest me. And there was one about, There was a course on television i figured well and here's my motivation that sounds easy you know that won't be a hard thing not a lot of studying it's television and so i ended up doing that and there was a professor who ran this class and i i did this little show thing uh as an exercise and he took a liking to me, and he got me a job at WTOP, which is Channel 9 in Washington, D.C., yeah. in a training program. You get $50 a week, and, you, and then you, you do everything. You run the teleprompter. You make slides for the news show. I worked the hand puppets on the Ranger Hal show, <laughs> and, Ranger Hal Robert, show. and Dr. Fox, and I did all those things. <laughs> and that's what I started doing. And I started uh, – one of her jobs is to roll the commercial breaks – yeah. Into the late show and the late late show. You remember right. where they used to have So those? you were the
0: sucker that had you were the only one in the studio. I yeah, let the I'm kid there. do it. Yeah. See
1: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so you there until like 2 30 in the morning. You <laughs> yeah. Know? And the screw ups that went on, et cetera, in that particular period of time. And uh but uh, I'm gonna sidetrack, but here's like a thing that was amazing to me is that I always wonder about the audience out there because you never, you don't see an audience. You just do it and you go, is anybody actually watching? Right. And I, I only say this because one time, one night they, the the late show and, uh, and it was called the, the, it was a Glenn Ford and the man from the Alamo. It it started and the thing is going on. And the first commercial break that comes up, it would say like a guy goes out the door, a door slams go to the commercial break, right? Yeah, And it was that, and all of a sudden the, the leader came up. So something is out of whack. Right. So instead of saying, why is this the cue wrong? Now at five minutes to 12, we go back to the movie. Yeah. And it goes the end. Now it's, the, it started at 1130 at five minutes to 12. It says the end. Yeah. And so we realized we got the last reel up first. Rather than the first reel, right? You go to the go to the announce booth, and the announcer says, "And now for the beginning of the Man from the Alamo," and then the movie starts. Right? Not one phone call to say, "What the hell is going on here?" You show the end of the movie first, and then the beginning. Nobody called. No one. Uh And you go. Are people actually watching? Is there an audience, or do or do they just not care? It doesn't make any difference if it's out of, out of
0: the story is at backwards. that hour. Maybe, maybe yeah. they just, maybe it's just <laughs> may, like for me the that resonates because I used to watch. I used to like like I still like coming upon things that are already on. Like, because now you can start anything anytime there's no channels yeah. but i used to like turning on the tv and and being in the middle of something because it right. for some reason it made me feel like well there's got to be someone else alive who's showing this movie so maybe <laughs> maybe that comforted people like you know the, the one other guy that's up fucked up <laughs> you know what I mean? well you know when you say that
1: mark when I, we were kids and we went to the movie theaters We didn't know when the show began. You know, we'd be eight years old. You would go to the movies. Sure. Saturday. And you just walked in and you sat down. So you you never saw a movie from the beginning. Yeah. And so... And then there'd be, you know, cartoons and things. And then it would come back to the movie. And then there would be that point where we would turn to one another. Is this where we came in? Is this, is this, is this where we came in? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah. But wait for it. Let's see the, see the fight scene again, you know. And then, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. then you would leave. And so but, we never saw things from beginning to end as kids. Because yeah. we never knew when a show began. You know, we went to the movie theater. It wasn't like, oh, at nine,
0: yeah, you know. It, it was time, Your parents just time. wanted to know where you were for a couple hours. Yeah. they'll be in there. And yeah. we could do some stuff. <laughs> uh, so, so you had some experience, at least, with hand puppets and and uh, <laughs> hand puppets and all that. And then
1: I, <laughs> and working on the news shows and, and watching movies.
0: Stuff. Anyways, you got to sit there and watch movies.
1: I saw two movies a night for almost a year, and and that, in a sense, without thinking about ever getting into the business, I just started watching films I had never heard of, like I saw Citizen Kane. I never heard of Citizen yeah. Kane. Yeah, and so I'd see some of these movies, and I'd 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 see Preston Sturges films and everything else, things I had never heard about. No one talked about, and that that began to get into my head without me consciously thinking about it. So when I came out to L.A., I ended up at the um, down at the beach in Hermosa Beach, Santa Hermosa Hermosa Beach, Beach down there, and um, I was starting to hang around with uh, this guy named George. And uh, George and I would hang around. At one point, he, you know, he he didn't have money. I didn't have any money. And uh, a lot of people, we were just,
0: you know, you just get by. What year is this? Like 1970? This would be, no, this was about 1968. Wow. So it was crazy here.
1: Uh, Yeah, it was totally nuts. I mean, it was like like a, a total crazy period and great fun.
0: Just like hippies and, I, and drugs and weed and, you know, people. All walking. of
1: everything was going on and the, the music was changing and it was all things were going on and everything was sort of very loose. Like, uh, it, for instance, like, you know, now you hear about Laurel Canyon. and the Right. Things. Uh, but we would literally go over there and come up into the area and we would go up and you just walk along the streets. and You hear some music and you wander in, and you sit around and people are, you know. You know, smoking joints, whatever, dancing, carrying on or whatever. And there would be those people like so from, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young and, you know, all of those people. And you didn't even know who everybody was at that point.
0: You know, it was was just like just people walking through the canyon. huh?
1: Yeah. wandering around. Yeah. (laughs) But, (laughs) But backing up for a second at the beach, one day, George comes up to me and he says down in Hermosa Beach, he said, look, my car broke down and you have to go up into Hollywood and uh, can I borrow your car or you want to drive me? And I said, okay, I hadn't been up to Hollywood yet. So, I said, okay. So I drive him up there. We pull up to this building and he says, come on in. I said, well, what are you, what are you, what are you going to do? He said, well, I want to sign up for this. Uh, I want to check out this uh, acting
0: group. Yeah.
1: I said, oh no, 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 please. I mean, I'm gonna George. I'm going to stay in the car here. I'm not going to, no, it's, I'm not doing that. Yeah, he said, "Come in." I, I'll feel obligated to come in. So I went in, and uh, I'm watching it. It was interesting, you know. There's a, they're doing exercises and things, and little scene study things, and I was rather sort of fascinated by it. George signs up riding back down he says, why don't you join you know why don't you become part of the class you know then we can just you know we can share a ride so i'll drive sometimes you drive because it's like an hour to get back there yeah i said george i don't want to do that he says, that'll be a kick there's some good looking <laughs> girls wow some. it'll be fun whatever yeah. talks me into it so now we go up and back george starts getting bored doesn't care for to the class anymore he doesn't want to go right. okay so Now I'm going up and back by myself. And I'm saying, George, for God's sakes, I mean, now I'm going, you're not involved in this. I said, I think I'm going to move up into the Hollywood area because it's too far to keep going back and forth. So, you know, I packed up and I moved out. Now, here's the thing I try to explain to people, you know, nowadays. Uh, Back then, when you moved, you lost contact with a person because there wasn't a phone, you know, know, we didn't have phones, you know, that we could, or if we moved, you know, we didn't have that. So the telephone, we were always using telephone booths to call one another because we, you know, we, we were living on the cheap. And so I get involved in the acting class. I get more involved things. I'm doing stuff and spending all the time there. And there's a guy named Craig T. Nelson and he's in the class and we're hanging out and we started doing some little improv things together and we start, you know, getting some laughs in the class. And I said to, uh, you know, Craig, maybe we can put some material together and we'll play some clubs just to make some money. Because, I mean, I, was, I had no money then. And, uh, and he was working in a bank. And so we started to play some clubs, right? With, your, so we, t-
0: with the routine? Uh, yeah, we're,
1: we're putting team. little... Yeah. We're like a comedy team, Yeah, but we didn't, we didn't do jokes with one another because neither one of us knew how to do jokes, but we would literally do little scenes of uh-huh. things uh-huh. and, and uh, you know, three, four minute pieces. And we started playing at the clubs in LA. I didn't want to, I didn't want to perform uh, at all. Craig didn't want to do comedy. He wanted to be a, you know, a, a legitimate actor, really, right. you know? And so, but we were doing all that. And so uh, at some point, you know we 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 worked a few television shows together and then eventually he wanted to focus on acting and i continued to write and did comedy and as i say with rudy deluca we did comedy i did carol Burnett show and some other things then we went to work for mel brooks and did all of that and um uh and so, it just slowly began to move along
0: until I finally ended up writing well you so you glad. figured out how to write jokes clearly
1: now, I didn't really write them i can only I can only do it if it was really connected to character right you know I mean some people can just go bang, they <laughs> just like write
0: write bits, bits.
1: I can only do it as character within a in a in a in a situation,
0: yeah, I guess you probably learned how to hone that with uh. Because Carol Burnett was like that. I mean, those shows were like that. Those variety yeah. shows, those sketches were, and some of those shows, like Carol Burnett, specifically had, you know, recurring characters. I mean, every week yes. in the sketches. Yeah,
1: if, if something caught on, then they, we we'd play it out. We used to do a lot of um, uh, the, the sketches, and, and and they were great because they really worked it. They didn't read off of cue cards. They they learned the lines and they really performed it. You know, and, how funny uh, was
0: Tim Conway, buddy?
1: Conway was hysterical. Conway, it was, we wrote a lot of his <laughs> his old man sketches. When he was an yeah. old man, he would go real slow, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. And so we wrote a lot of those physical pieces for him. Yeah. And, he would, and he would elaborate. And you could see him sometimes. And if you went by the set, you'd see him wandering around, and he would be testing the door to see how strong the door is yeah. because he he was going to throw a little piece in here, a piece of physical comedy. He was a great physical comedian. Oh yeah, really one of the greats.
0: So when you wrote for you wrote uh, with Mel Brooks, when now I would assume that writing like High Anxiety. Uh, which other one did you do with him? Uh, uh, silent silent movie.
1: movie, silent movie, and High Anxiety.
0: But did you was that a was that a writers' room? I mean, uh, it was is that how that worked? Or
1: there were four of us. There'd be Mel, uh, Rudy Deluca, uh, Ron Clark. And uh, and myself and we we would, you know, work it from there. And you sat four of you and we would just continue to throw ideas around and certain things would stick. And Mel was like really great. I mean, he, he was so first of all, he's maybe the, the, the funniest person I think I've ever met. I mean, <laughs> yeah. he'll get into a rant about something and he's yeah. just amazing. And he was very open and. And, and this is the key thing that happened in, in a sense of my life is that we were on the set when he was shooting and he would be by the monitor and he had us there and we would watch. And so you're now, you're seeing him do it. And so sometimes you go over and you say, Mel, maybe you should do middle of whatever it may be. And that was the beginning. I think of me beginning to think of beyond just writing, right. uh, and then i began to sort of like what happens if the camera's here instead of there And what happens if you did that and what happens right. if this is a little faster and what happens if you do and that was the, i think the beginning that gestation of things are beginning to bubble up in my head
0: and i would imagine too like the one thing that i learned about you know directing uh just from watching it in the limited experience i have is that you know if you've got a good dp who who, who you know has got a good head on his shoulders you know it gives you a lot of creative freedom right like you know you you can just whatever you conceptualize you can say you know there's a whole crew of people that will manifest it for you they can yeah
1: if they're all in sync right because what happens is sometimes you'll have a cameraman who wants to put the camera here yeah and you know that in a sense it's it's less dramatic or yeah. it it you know whatever the decisions are so sometimes it, it, you you have to really connect with a as a camera person so that you're really in sync about how to handle it and the rhythms of all of it, because it's, you know, if you, especially if you're doing a comedy, as you would know, if you, if you tamper with the, the rhythm of something, it yeah. can be, it can be uh, not funny at all. And then all of a sudden you do it that and all of a sudden, boom, it just pops and so the, you have to protect the rhythm. When you have a couple of people doing something, you have to be able to support that rhythm.
0: Well, I mean, that must have been good training to do the two Mel Brooks movies or the three that you did. He was great. And, and he, in fact,
1: was the one, I, sometimes lunch, we lunch because we'd go to lunch every day. And uh, I would talk about you know, some of the guys I knew in Baltimore. And Mel was the one who actually said to me, well, why don't you write about those guys? And he, in fact, he even said, you know, Fellini's uh, film *Eva yeah. I- and he mentioned that as a as an example. And uh, uh, then eventually, I ended up, you know, uh, doing *Diner*. But it, it, it was his encouragement because I had all these ideas, but I didn't I hadn't thought of it in in film terms. And so he was very uh, instrumental.
0: And and you got to work with Harvey Corman again, so. <laughs> oh,
1: but it was, it was great. I mean, it was terrific. And just let me, I'll backtrack just to give you about how crazy things are in terms of life. I said that George was the one that got me to go to the acting class and the acting class led to, you know, meeting, uh, uh, Craig and then doing, you know, working clubs and that led to this. And one thing at the writing, etc., cetera, et cetera. And so I, um, uh, Someone said to me after I'd done a bunch of things, and they said, well, and I said, you know, George was very responsible for me in in my career because he was the one who said, hey, why don't we go up to Hollywood? And they said, so what happened to George? I said, I never saw him again from 1968. And they said, well, what happened to him? And I said, I don't know. I don't know what happened to him, but he was instrumental in that first step. Now I go to a, a movie. Yeah in 2000, yeah. with my wife, go to see the movie Blow, right? Yeah. Johnny Depp uh, in the film. And um, it starts says 1968, Santa Monica, the beach, and I hear George, you know, George. Uh, and, uh, and then I hear the name George Young. I go, George Young, you know? And then if you watch the film, <laughs> he, he, this character becomes the largest cocaine dealer in North America. And I turned to my wife, I said, that's George. That's George. He says, "What are you talking about? The George I've always mentioned to you—that I got started, George. So yeah. I ended up getting into this. George ends up becoming the largest cocaine dealer in North America. Ultimately, he went to prison, etc. That's all the movie's all about, right? So now, here, here's what's crazy. Yeah, I he got out of prison, and I called him. Yeah, and uh, talked to him. And he said, I got to tell you one thing that's crazy. He said, you know, you always used to say to me, you know, when I was, you know, smoking, you know, dope and stuff and selling little baggies, et cetera. He said, you know, George, you got to stop with that shit. You're going to get in trouble one yeah, day. And he said, right. you kept all fucking carrying on about that. You know, that. And he said, so anyway, finally, I get arrested. I'm, I'm being taken into the police station. I'm in handcuffs. I'm going up the steps. I go into the police station. The Academy Awards is on. And I'm looking up and it says, and then best director for Ray Baff, Barry Levinson. And he said, and it flashed in my head, George, you got to stop with that dope and stuff. You're going to get in trouble.
0: Uh, So is he out still? He's out still, yes. But isn't that
1: like crazy in terms of like stories, how things go? Yeah, I
0: mean, you know, hey, you never know. You have different career paths, Barry. That's all, you know. It sounds like he did all right for himself for a while. For a while, yeah, <laughs> it's a risky yeah. game. That's hilarious <laughs> that that's how you've reconnected with them. It is sort of interesting that you know mentioning the the difference in in pace and t- before everything was so technologized, you know, like that with 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 phones and with everything else that there was long swaths of time where you you just were out of contact with people. No, no,
1: because you don't have a cell phone, you yeah. just can't just pull it up. So unless somebody would have like a you know, post office box that they would have and they would go right. there periodically because everybody was moving around. So your address was meaningless. Right. And your phone, your every time you move the phone would, you know, you're canceling it. Yeah. And so it was very hard to stay connected.
0: Sure. Except sure.
1: You, by wandering around and running into one another.
0: Yeah. And meeting with people. So. So Mel, Inspired you to to kind of flesh out that story, but it, clearly you add an, uh You like to write, or it's like for me when I was reading over some of the stuff about you. I mean, the, the fact that in the middle of everything else, at some point, you wrote a novel too. I'm like, Jesus Christ, this guy really must love it because I can't stand it. <laughs> and it like, it's it, to me, it's such a fucking chore. Even my own show, I didn't like writing. So. <laughs> Maybe it's just the nature of a comedian. I don't know, and I've written books, but it's like it's never fun. It's never fun. But uh, I but- don't, to be honest with you, uh,
1: because I was such a bad student in school. Yeah, I mean, so I, I would literally fail almost, you know, all the time because I couldn't pay attention in the class. I always thought everything was going in slow motion, so I, I would fail. So I never thought of myself as being able to really do anything on an academic level at all. Yeah. And, and writing never occurred to me either. It, 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 because whenever I had to write a paper, I used to get, you know, failing grades all the time. So I never knew that I could write. And I thought, well, isn't this any good? You know, like I, as an example, and this is like I think about the educational system that I sometimes really worry about. Um, I had to write a book report and I did... Uh, you know, uh, catcher in the rye. Okay. Yeah. So I wrote the book report uh, as if I were, was uh, Holden. Holden Caulfield. Yeah. And I said, I really don't like to write book reports. So I guess, but if I have to write a book report, I will, but, you know, it's not something that I really am interested in. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And I, that's how I did the book report. And of course, I got a failing grit uh, from it. <laughs> so I, because I couldn't conform to the book report way of doing things. Yeah. And, and that's the only way I knew how to work is like whatever occurs to me right. to, to tell the story, whether it's a book report or whatever. And it wasn't until much later that I began to say, oh, wait a minute, uh, you can tell a story in another way. And, and as an, a short example, and I want to go on about this, when, um, when, I, when I did Diner, And uh, the studio saw it and it said, uh, you know, you have a lot to learn about editing. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, it says like, you know, he's going to eat the sandwich. You're not going to eat the sandwich. You know, they're just talking about a sandwich.
0: (laughs) The best scene in the movie.
1: He says, cut and just get to the story. And I said, that is the story. (laughs) And what I meant in a sense is, I am telling a story, but I don't, want to, I don't want the story to just be the main uh, upfront on it. We, we'll follow the story through this kind of seemingly meaningless conversations, but that's what we do. We don't express ourselves in such an articulate fashion. It's always sideways. If, you're, if you happen to be in love with somebody and you don't know how to talk to them about it, you don't just come right out and say it. It's... You're... you're you're, you're, you're going left and right and whatever. You're never direct about it. And that's human behavior. But you can tell the story through that. And that's what I thought Diner was. So there is a story, multiple stories. But I try to hide it with these conversations. But it tells you how close they are to one another.
0: Right. Well, yeah. well, that, well, that's the interesting thing, thing about that. I guess that the network executive was thinking in terms of one through line, which in, in that movie, it's sort of an umbrella you know the 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 sort of you know, the the pending marriage just becomes this umbrella for several different stories about characters yeah and but they're and all they all have
1: their multiple stories to it but it's hidden in that way
0: right you know? yeah and i mean it's sort of like american graffiti in that way and it, it, it kind of right like yes. there's yeah. Uh, yeah i i never thought about it until you were just talking about it that you know what is the story of that other than yeah. an evening before some kid goes to college,
1: yes, no, and that and that's important, yeah. you know as opposed to some that's important that's why you know people connecting you, you you make that you make that connection you know you know what's so fascinating about uh, about uh, influences that you don't understand you don't always understand what influences you in your life and yeah. it wasn't until much later in life that I realized uh, that Patty Chayefsky and Marty was probably the most influential moment when I was a kid and I was watching Marty on television.
0: What do you want to do, Marty?
1: What do you want to do, Marty? I don't know, Angie. What do you want to do? Right? I thought that was literally the greatest thing I'd ever heard in my life. And I was a little kid and I'd always walk around you know, in the house with my mother and father and say, what do you want to do tonight, Marty? I don't know. What do you want to do, Angie? You know, what are you talking about? You know, I, and I would do it all, all the time because I found it so fascinating to me. Right now, I didn't make any sense out of it at the time. But it was but human. It, it was human. And that's what Diner ultimately was. It was that. And that was what I extracted from
0: Chayefsky's work. It, it felt like real life to you. Yeah. Like this is how I, people talk.
1: That's 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 life, and right. that. So there are these little influences that we don't always. We're never smart enough to go. Oh, you know what? I'm really influenced by. You know, some things just get in your head, and years later, you may make sense out of it. And and I think that's what makes it exciting in terms of what what I'm saying. What we're able to do in in writing and directing and etc. It, well,
0: it's interesting because it seems like Chayefsky is like. He, he, it seems like there is a that you did. You were kind of similar in a way with some of the movies, weren't you? I mean, a little bit. And if I were to think about it, I mean, network. I mean, if you really think about network and some of the movies, the satires you did around television, do you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, wag the dog, Jimmy Hollywood, you know, man of the year. I mean, thematically, it's similar.
1: It's it's in the ballpark. Right. I mean, he was truly I mean, I would think of him as a truly, truly brilliant writer. And and I would only be in the margins of that, but I do believe yes that it, it it's like look if you're taking about the breakup of an an American family in a sense an Avalon was like you cut the turkey without me you know we leave right, right? that and that it wasn't the, just the turkey it was the whole shift that was taking place it was the change of of the, the breakup of the family structure, all these things. And it, it comes out that way rather than this articulate version of, you know, two brothers. It's, you know, it, that, that in a sense was the breaking point. And as crazy as it is, th- it it has its value rather than being so articulate and expressing ourselves.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. Right. As opposed to sort of you know, the 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 story points are are sublimated in the characters whereas you're not just sort of like here's your act break this is the point of this you know the yeah it kind of sneaks up on you like it's all it's almost like even in rain man where you know that movie's really about uh a type of personality that kind of uh, was was prominent in the 80s, that, that type of ambition and selfishness and the 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 drive of the Tom Cruise's character that it, it disabled his ability to be empathetic uh, to to the struggles of his brother, who he didn't know. And that, you know, he really is able to come back around uh, and, and find his heart and his purpose, you know, through this brother and, and find out what's important in life, you know, relative to sort of, you know, the, it really becomes almost about like, you know, aspiring to be a Gordon Gecko type of character or 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 really engaging in in, in you know, empathy and family and caring and, and, and understanding humanity.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's all in there. And then you just have to put that all aside and you just you're just involved with the story, it, you know, and, and that. But that's that's 100 percent. That, that, that's the case.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I just like I—I I don't know how conscious you are of that in terms of, you know, creating these things that do you know represent a time or or like you know even diner was a generational thing.
1: Exactly. I mean, that's why there's a line that Kevin Bacon has very early on in terms of things that are beyond what they have been around. Is uh, uh, Kevin Bacon sees the girl on the horse and uh, said, uh, "Everything, there's something going on that we don't know about." You right. know what I mean it's yeah. like <laughs> right a girl and a horse and a whatever, and it's you know yeah. beautiful yeah. or whatever that's there's something else out there,
0: yeah, and his character is you know slightly more nihilistic than the other ones for whatever yeah. reason, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I remember I just remember all that because I remember seeing that and you know, you know becoming fascinated with with riser because it was at that time after I you introduced me to riser. And I I went to the comic strip in New York and I wanted to do comedy. And I remember because I knew Riser from Diner and I saw him at the comic strip that night, I, I approached him to ask him how to start doing comedy. And was really? Because, yeah. Uh, you know, he was just sitting there at the strip. And I think I was like, I must have been in college I don't remember when it was, but I just I, I asked him if I could sit with him for a minute and, and, and talk to him. He said, all right. And I, and I said, well, what, how do you get how do you do comedy? How do you start doing comedy as a living? And he literally just said, I don't know. You just got to do it. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> that was that was the big moment. That but, is uh, it. <laughs> that's all I got out of Paul, you know, at that moment. But, but it seems to me that over the course of your career that, you know, there are these human stories, and I guess they're all human to a degree. But you certainly, you know, you didn't, uh, you know, tether yourself to any one form. It, was, you've done every kind yeah. of fucking movie. I mean, the, I watched the Natural a lot. I would say out of all your movies, I watch that one the most. I don't know why, but but I, I tend to I'll, I'll watch it on purpose more than uh, than other ones because yeah. uh, it's just the look of it and the feel of it and the the heroic tale and there's just something like the the reason I will go back to it is just the, the complete insanity of that Barbara Hershey character. Like if you, if you do anything that's recognized, you know, if your fame, if you, in any way there, there, that woman's around. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just, that's just a terrifying thing, man. It's, (laughs) And I don't know what it is. You
1: know, know what's amazing. In in, in some ways, it's like, you know, luck uh, as well. Uh, The idea that, um, uh, you know, Redford uh, ultimately uh, had, you know, uh, because we had met and we were talking about baseball. And he said, you know, I got this script around here uh, somewhere and he, he pulls it out and it was a natural. He says, take a look at this. See what you think. And I, I read it and I called him. I said, gee, I think this is great. I didn't really know him well. I just met him. And, uh, and he said, yeah, okay, good. And we ended up, you know, doing that film. Now, when I think back on it, here's a, here's a, uh, this actor, this giant actor who also won an Academy award as best director. And he ends up saying, yeah, yeah, you should direct this film. Yeah. Uh, you know, what I mean, it's it's such a leap of faith uh, on his behalf. Well, I and, guess so. Uh, yeah,
0: you're pretty early on. You've only done a couple movies that you directed. One movie. One. one. Oh, that was it.
1: That <laughs> was it. Diner, yeah, no and then there's the natural. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but but the choices in that, because like you know, if I read it like, um, it's one of those things where you know, like when I was in college studying film, I never really understood semiotics or 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 the language of you know, that that that's that's a mythological story that like as a film to study, you know, it's, it's almost a, a Homeric story, right? Yeah, sure. And I guess it's that way in the book. But it's interesting to me to know that the book ends with him striking out. And, yeah. and like, you know, like the, and, and you second movie in, you're given the script and, and the, you know, Bernard Malamud, he, the the hero strikes out. There's no fucking way you could do that. Right. No. <laughs> no. Yeah. Like, I mean, did, did that ever come up? It, uh,
1: you know, one day when we were, uh, we were uh, cutting the film yeah. and uh, you know, he swings and misses, you know, yeah. in that. And, uh, and I, I said to the editor, why don't we, like, send this to the the studio? Just, you're, it's three, you're out. We just put that in there, and it goes to black, and just send it to the studio. Can you imagine everybody have a heart attack? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and you couldn't do it. But, you know, there were all these changes along the way. The, the one thing that, uh, and I wish I would have known this at the time, and I only heard about it later on, is that Malaman, uh who wrote this, very american you know uh, piece uh and but it didn't sell well in its time it wasn't a giant bestseller and he went to supposedly as i remember is a long time ago now uh with his uh daughter and they went to see the natural and he came out and she says so dad what do you think and he said finally i'm an american writer Really, and, and and I thought, my God, I wish I would have I would have known that, you know, at the time. I mean, so you know, he was able to enjoy it, even though we have to make you know, these kinds of changes within it. Yeah. But initially, the critics never could get over that. Well, that he didn't just strike out, you know, because it was like, well, nah, he, in the book, he strikes out. You know? so, they, and, oh, and so they they,
0: they wrote they, you they, for they, that.
1: Were, they were not happy about that. That the film was attacked because he. He hit a home run and he didn't strike out
0: in well, the movie. Apparently, they just can't uh, quite understand the Jews' legacy in Hollywood. We are here <laughs> to create America and make it happy.
1: Yes. <laughs> you, guys, said. you guys wouldn't, you
0: wouldn't, wouldn't accept us on any level until we made these dreams for you. See, the guy wins in the end. Yes, <laughs> and it made Bernard feel American finally. He realized, like maybe then, I don't, finally, maybe, yeah. I don't have to be depressed. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe there is yeah. hope. That's that's too much, man. So yeah. you stayed pretty close with Robin the whole time, right? Yes,
1: yes, yeah. It was it, it was such a shock, you know. In term, it was such a shock, and and it's one of those things when you suddenly, you know, uh, you got to get a phone call and say, you know, you know, Robin, you know, committed suicide. I mean, it was like devastating. It was, it, it, it's hard to, to even talk about it because it's somehow you couldn't even envision anything like that. You know? Yeah. He, he was such a great character, you know, and, and, uh, And in some ways, you know, he he had such a great empathy for people as well. You know, I mean, I mean, he was he was really uh, uh, had that a childlike fascination, you know, for for a number of things and people and everything else. And so when I when I got that phone call, I was like, well, you don't know you you can't even describe. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, because I think like it seems that Good Morning Vietnam really was the, the beginning in a way of of. You know, him in in, in terms of feature films, that that was the the thing that it was perfect for him. Yeah. And you kind of you knew that
1: you you knew it and we worked on it uh, to get that uh, because I thought that was the key thing to it. You know, even though the radio stuff is only 12 minutes of the movie. You know, it's something like that. It's very, was a, very it, was
0: a, it was an exciting balance because, you know, he had done, I think, a few movies before that where he tried to just be a serious actor. But to incorporate that side of him effectively in a way that, you know, wasn't just eating scenery, but had a purpose. And then yeah. to sort of counterbalance it with his empathy was, you know, that was the trick. Right.
1: Yeah. And, and you had to balance the, the empathy of it because it's very easy in a sense where it's too much because he does feel that much. So sometimes on screen, you have to say, look, we got to back up a little bit, you know what I mean? We're, otherwise it's too much because oh, he, he had such a heart to him that literally, oh, you, don't want to,
0: you don't want it to get sappy.
1: You don't want it to get sappy. And you had to like restrain that a little bit to pull that in, to get, to get that, you know.
0: So you get real hands on sometimes with the actors in terms of. Like- well,
1: yeah, when you do, I mean, I, I like to, I, you know, I was sort of, a, you can say it's like a cult, uh, a controlled freedom mm. is that I want an actor to feel very free within it to try any particular thing. But at the same time, you know, there, there, there's a limitation to it, but you don't want to, you don't want to push the limitation because that would restrict what we might do, mm. you know, because, mm. you know, there's these moments, you know, it goes this way or that way. And, and, and it was very, there was a lot of fun to take certain scenes and then just see what would happen if we did this. Right. And, and for instance, there's a scene in the film. And I said to him one day, I said, you know, I I have to find a scene for you where you see uh, your, how, how much you mean to the troops, because otherwise it's an abstract. You're in a, you're in a radio booth and you're doing this comedy, but you don't hear laughs. And so therefore you don't know, you know, cause and effect really, you right. know, that they like you, but you don't hear it. You don't hear it. You're right. never there. And so he said, well, what are we able to do? I said, why don't, and so I said, uh, why don't we just have like there's a traffic jam and all the trucks are backed up and then you're stuck and they, and somehow they know it's you and then you start, and then you end up doing it to the, you know, you start playing around with the soldiers and we, and now you got the cause and effect and you see how important you are to these soldiers.
0: Oh, yeah. And, and so I'm that, sure Robin really fought that idea, I bet. Huh? Here, get, you so, get to perform for people.
1: <laughs> <yeah. laughs> oh, so no, I how, can't do it. I can't do it. And that's how that sort of came about. Uh-huh. And, uh, and yeah. it, was tough. it was tough for him in this regard because a bunch of these, you know, because we're over there in Thailand. And I end up throwing this thing and now we got to get like soldiers. Right. Right. And so we end up with just getting, you know, a bunch of people. And then some of them are like, you know, uh, from other countries, they don't even understand English. Right. You know, they are they're They don't know what the hell he's saying. <laughs> and he had to find a way, you know, to work with that.
0: Oh, that know? must have been great for him. Yeah. yeah. I, I
1: don't know. Because, you know, he's got to adapt to it. You yeah. know, and you, and yeah. he's so smart he'd find ways to you know just by sounds and things yeah, physicalizing. that he would do yeah and they'll pull it pull people
0: in he was a sweet guy i mean I, I guess it's terribly sad and and uh you know when you think about it he's definitely missed and i th- i just think like what you're talking about his empathy and stuff he was a very really when you talk to him or when you know him for a little bit he's a very quiet shy guy <laughs> you know like it's just yeah, definitely absorbing things and you know engaged, but you know by nature not uh, you know he had to turn that shit on you know. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. So the other thing I was realizing about I mean obviously with Avalon you 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 kind of um depicted where you come from, but I was thinking about Bugsy because like, I was thinking about that movie and it, I just had this realization this morning that like. With because I remember knowing enough about the mob to know that Warren Beatty was much older than Bugsy ever made it to, right
1: yeah, uh, but by I don't know ten t- 10, years, yeah, something but then like I that, started
0: right? to realize like with these stories, what fucking difference does it make
1: right. right. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Gee, it wasn't Bugsy. He wasn't uh, the 30. He was only 39. Right. At the time, yeah?
0: But but like but, you know, there's this the, the idea of historical accuracy is relative in some cases. But in the cases of these mythic stories about, you know, criminals or cowboys or whatever, it doesn't matter. You, you know what I mean? It, it, it's really about the story. Right.
1: Yes, it's the character uh, that's being portrayed as opposed to the authenticity of like age or other certain things. Because, you know, look, uh, sometimes you can take, sometimes you can stray too far and therefore it ultimately undermines the character because you've so altered it that it doesn't quite work or make sense. But in terms of age, uh, at times it doesn't matter unless the age is really an issue in the film you know what i mean if the sure. guy right, was, right, was right. 25 and died then he did that and you got a guy who's 50 it doesn't you know it doesn't work um so i think whenever you're doing a film you always have to sort of say uh how important is this to the story we're telling yeah and how much will it how, how much will it affect how we uh process it
0: yeah uh, and what I, I didn't realize until like Maybe today that you know you kind of invented uh, or or was you know at the beginning of this prestige TV idea, the idea you know that you you seem to be one of the first to figure out that you could do TV uh, with the same quality of movies, even on an episodic level, right? With uh, with homicide and uh, yeah and uh, Oz yeah. for sure.
1: I did, look I look because I came out of television and television has uh, an important place as opposed to just features. Because when I originally got the book, uh, Simon's book on Homicide, it was about developing it as a film. And I thought, no, it's better as a television series mm. because you can just let these stories play out. And then, fortunately, at that time, uh, I was able to, uh, I said, look, I'd like to shoot it because th- back then it was like, well, you, you, you'll do some exteriors and you do all the interiors and all yeah. And, and I thought, well, that's not going to be realistic uh, to me. And I said, I'd like to shoot it in Baltimore. Yeah. And they said, well, the cost and whatever. And I said, well, but what we'll do is we'll just basically shoot on 16 millimeter, uh, which super 16, which no network show was ever on super 16. A- and no show was handheld on super 16.
0: What would they do? Know? What would they take out there? 35 millimeter on the street? Yeah. Yeah. Uh uh-huh.
1: Yeah. And, uh, so I thought, I thought, you know, by having a little handheld super 16, yeah. you know, we could have a raggedness and let the raggedness be part of the show because right. there's an edginess about it. And I thought, uh, and, and, and again, it goes back to my youth. I loved naked city when I was a kid. Right. I loved that television show. And that was shot on the streets of New York. And so I thought, gee, I wonder if I could just do that for Baltimore and, and we can be even more ragged
0: than, uh.
1: Make uh, uh, it sure. was sure in its time, and so that's how it
0: evolved. And and was Simon happy with it initially? Is he has he always been okay? Well, with he
1: was. Ha- I mean, that's how he, he. That's when he started to write because we brought him in. He became one of the writers on the show, yeah. And that's where he started to uh, make that real transition from a, a journalist to a um, uh, you know a, a writer.
0: And you say, and you 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 got Richard Belzer a new life.
1: Yes, I, I heard. Uh, I, we were about to cast some other actor and I thought, you know, this guy's not bad, but uh, I, I don't know how surprising, you know, I said, maybe I need to get some guy that some, uh, and I couldn't quite explain it, you know, so we need some guy that uh, something different or yeah. whatever. And I was riding in my car and I was listening to Howard Stern and Belzer was on Howard Stern. Yeah. And I was listening to him in the rhythms that he had. And I thought, gee, I wonder if he can, he could be an actor, and, and and so he came in. He read. He wasn't particularly good, and uh, I, I and I said, well, well, why don't we come back one more time and just sort of you kind of know it, you know? So you like, you know, you're just talking like you would do if you're doing your a stand-up, you know, just so it's more naturalistic. And he he got better. He wasn't great at that time, but I thought, you know, with a little bit more time, I think he can he can land this character. And uh that's how it
0: happened. And I didn't realize also before I forget that uh, that you wrote uh And Justice for All. Yeah. With uh was she your wife at the time? Uh yes, Valerie Curtin. Yeah. So you wrote uh you're out of order. I huh? this whole <laughs> I'm out of order, you're out that's one of those Marty lines, right? Yeah. Yes, it is, yeah. It's very much so. <laughs>
1: That came about because of you know the diner guys that grew up, and some and one in particular became a lawyer,
0: uh-huh.
1: and so when I would go back and visit and we would talk, and he was telling me, he said, you know something, the legal system is so screwed up. He said, you always get this Perry Mason kind of law shows or whatever. He says it's chaos. Yeah. It's chaos. <laughs> it's 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 madness. And so we started talking, and he was telling me stories, uh-huh. and I started gathering the stories. And uh, and then I I was telling you know Valerie and then ultimately we we you know we did, we turned it into a screenplay.
0: Oh the chaos! That is exactly it with Jeffrey Tambor throwing those plates in the hallway. Yeah, right no, the-
1: it's t- he, it, it, the, the friend of mine was saying you don't understand. And he was telling me about the fact that. You know, some uh, judges, you know, carried guns in the courtroom. Uh, oh, Jack know, Warden,
0: he was so good.
1: Jack Warden with a yeah. gun yeah. and stuff. And were, he was telling me, he said, "This, it's another. You don't understand how crazy it is." <laughs> you know, people coming in to the for a case or whatever, and they don't—they got the wrong client. I mean, he said, you know, he oh was telling me many, many stories, and that's how it happened.
0: And that was that movie did well. And that was what? Yeah. How, how did that get set up with Jewison and everything? But we wrote it, yeah. and we
1: gave it to a producer named Joe Azan yeah. and Joe Azzan, um gave it to uh, Norman Jewison, who who really responded to it, and um, then he he was he he wanted Pacino, then basically Al wanted a big reading, you know, of it, have some reading to make sure that the, that's what he wanted to do, which I have to tell you was one of the worst experiences that I can remember because. Jewison's got all these actors in in this conference room in the evening start to go good. And then uh, Al gets a little quieter, you know, because he's thinking, you know, because I mean, now I know him well. But so he's, he's getting a little quieter, you know. So then the other actors not wanting to show him up, they get a little quiet. Yeah. And then Al is like thinking as he's, you know, he's going over this now. He's taking a long time to say things. Now they're getting a little slower. Yeah. So it's getting quieter. And then it's getting slower and slower and slower to the point that I didn't even know what the story was anymore. I couldn't even, I, I looked at Valerie and said, What in the world? This is a disaster, a total yeah. disaster. Yeah. Go back to the hotel. It's about one o'clock in the morning. And uh, Joe Azan calls and says, Al loves it. <laughs> 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 and that's how it happened
0: <laughs> and he was a big star at that time right that oh, was his, he's that huge, was his yeah. time
1: he's one of the great great actors i've had such a good time i'll tell you man
0: movies. the the um the kevorkian movie the you know you don't know, jack, yeah, don't know you, jack you did that for hbo right yeah i i really think that's really one of the best performances out of him ever He's amazing. He's an he's amazing. He and he's so he's so great
1: in a sense to work with and you know, throw ideas around, etc. And he and he just ab- absorbed certain things, you know, and then he's able to use it, you know. Because I said to him before we started shooting, I met with Gaborkin. And um, so we sit down in the office. And uh, at some point, someone came in and says, Jack, would you like some uh, coffee? And he said, yeah, coffee would be good. And he said, uh, they said, uh, decaf. And he said, uh, decaf is for cowards. (laughs) And and I laughed. He (laughs) smiled and he went out. And then I realized he's got this real sense of humor about him. So I said to Al, I said, we have to find little places where we can have a little bit of humor to this character. It'll make it a richer character because he actually is, you know, fun at times. Yeah. Here's Dr. Death, but he's actually has a, a sense of humor. And so uh, he said, OK, I, I said, well, I'll find places for it where we can, you know, we can just sort of mine that periodically and which we were able to add to it. And he just he'll, he'll go. He'll try things. I mean, he's very open. And just uh, I can't say enough about him.
0: Well, well, for me, the interesting thing was there was a period there where, you know, he he did a couple of roles that were were so defining and but they were so over the top, you know, scent of a woman, Scarface. The thing is, how do these method guys, how do these huge stars from the 70s, specifically him and De Niro, you know, you know, how do they age? How do they keep working? You know, and De Niro sort of found this new life in comedy, you know, where he's can parody himself pretty well, but he can also do the other thing. But he, you know, but it's very difficult for some actors not to become this sort of collection of habits and ticks that they can mm-hmm. just fill up again, you know? So for me, like when I watched the Kevorkian, I was like, he, he, he's so capable. They both are actually, because even De Niro in that movie, The Intern, the one he did with Anne Hathaway, it's it's mm-hmm. actually a great performance but they they the the way that that Pacino can tap into vulnerability because I mean that's really what made him amazing in in the 70s was that even as Michael Corleone, the evolution of that character from this the vulnerability that he's capable of yeah like in it seemed to have come back to me it, it, I could see it in the cavorkian thing and I could see him using his chops in a way that like he's not a caricature of himself you know.
1: No, not no, uh, not at all. I mean, I look. I think it depends on the on the role that you take on, right? You
0: know, well, you uh, work with De Niro too on the Madoff thing, right?
1: Yes, yeah, and th- that's a very quiet, very quiet character.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: Uh, that uh, that De Niro did, and I, I, I thought he was spectacular in that.
0: Do they work uh, similarly?
1: No, they're so they're they're different. Huh. You know, they're they're very different in their approach. Um, How so? To it. Um, I, you know, because when they're doing, well, I should say this, when they're actually doing a scene, I think that they're, they're the same and that they have this instinct. They're great at listening, you know, they're great listeners. Yeah. And, and that's one of the key things in terms of a a talented actor is that they'll hear something and they're responding in a way that you, we gravitate to like, want to watch their face because, they, they, there's something about it that compels us to to stare at that uh, at that screen. They both have that ability to 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 listen and are very open, you know, to things that'll happen. You know that they they could be spontaneous with. It won't be like some a line is being said and say, wait a minute, now uh, he didn't say that line. When, right. You know, they don't, they're they're in the scene and they're going and things will happen, and you, you'll. you'll if you're if you got the camera in the right place for it, you can pick up a, another special moment here and there. And uh, so they're very spontaneous. that Yeah. Way. Uh,
0: yeah. Jeff Daniels once told me like he he was very emphatic about it, about movie actors. It's like you got to learn how to work your face. It's all you know, you got it's all it's, it's all about the face. You know, And I never really thought about that. I'm paraphrasing. But he was very emphatic about it, that all the acting in movies is the most of it is the face.
1: It's the face and it's the eyes, you know? Uh, I know that sounds like crazy in a way, but I mean, I think there's a scene with um, Bob when he's in prison in Madoff, and he's, he's looking at this uh, piece of footage, you know, on the computer, and you just see him staring at the screen, you know, at that uh, you know, computer screen and staring at it, and it's, it's mesmerizing.
0: Mm, yeah. He's totally
1: in it. You know? Yeah, yeah. And then it, and then on cut. It's not like he's staying in a character. And then it's like, "Cut. Oh, okay." And then he walks away.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I saw, I I've right. seen him work. I worked with him briefly in that uh, I I was in a scene in The Joker. So I, I got to spend a, like a week or like 3 or 4 days on set with him oh, watching. Yeah. it. But the weird thing is you watch him cuz like he didn't have to do a lot for that role. You know, he was just like a a talk show host. But but it's sort of interesting to see you know, what I saw that day and I'm thinking like, how the fuck are they going to put this together? And then you watch it and you're like, oh, my God, like, you know, what they know about themselves and their process and how they do the work after so long. I couldn't see how it was all going to work when I was there, but it was perfect. You know, it's kind of astounding. It is.
1: I mean, it's a gift. You know, in the end of the day, there are these people that have this kind of gift and they know how to they they know how to develop it.
0: Yeah. And paterno and, and, was great too that's a difficult character were these like these three movies or the made off the Kevorkian and paterno were they were they brought to you or did you were those your ideas?
1: they all came to me initially and mm. then ultimately I worked with the uh, you know the writers on you know developing and so so Kevorkian uh came to me and then just sort of developed it along and that, that applies to you know all three of them because they're um And uh, there's that process because as you go along, you know, things are going to change and evolve and then you have to figure out how how best to, to, to create a moment or define a moment Mm -hmm. a little bit more, Mm -hmm. Um, which is, you know, it's all part of the building process of doing a film. It's not like you can show up one afternoon and here's the script and you go shoot it. You know what I mean? Because you got all these, all these departments have to ultimately fit in like a glove because what is the cinematography going to be like? How do you, what, what kind of, what color palette are you working with? Yeah. What kind of, what kind of architecture is going to be around it as well? Because all those things influence uh, a given scene. It's like I said to someone one time um, that if you wrote a scene and it's supposed to be outside, you know, on, on a tree lined street and you're going to shoot it in a kitchen uh, you just can't move it to the kitchen and it's going to work. And sometimes you have to you'll play around with it because, uh, or you'll say, wouldn't it be better if we did it this way as opposed to that way? You know, so there's all these variables that hopefully you get it right as you go along with the process. There's nothing, mecha- there's nothing mechanical about filmmaking. It, is, it, 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 it requires a combination of elements that have to come together and you've got to get this unit functioning in a certain way. To support uh, right the piece.
0: Now you've made a ton of movies. Some have done better better than others. Do you do you look at do? You, are there movies that you've done where you're like, well, that one didn't quite come together?
1: Um, you know, here here's the thing. I seldom watch films that I've done once I finished it. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes if I'm sitting in and I'm switching channels and I start to watch for a minute and say. <laughs> oh, I did that movie. And then immediately I switched to another channel. Why? Why? I don't know I don't know how to watch it once it's done. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Because what am I doing? I'm just watching what for just the entertainment value of it. You know, it's it's like I did that, so just oh, right. And also, of your memories
0: back. tied up with that process are what they are. Yes, so you're not going to be a
1: things, right? You're yeah. not going to be able
0: to remove yourself from that. Like I can't imagine you're watching one of your movies and there's a moment you're like, no, oh, this fucking, ugh, that was a pain <laughs> in the ass. That's yeah, right, yeah, that
1: yeah. Like I have I went to a festival it was a few years ago, and um, they wanted to show uh, uh, Rain Man at the festival. It was a big, big audience, and so I thought, you know. You you go there and you, etc. and they introduce you, et cetera, and then they're going to show the movie. and I said, well, then I'll sneak out. and the and The festival director said, no, you can't leave. You can't leave. I said, no, I, I don't. I don't want to stay and watch. and He said, well, you can. They would be offended. This was somewhere in Europe. You yeah. Know? You'll be offended if you don't stay for the film or whatever. So. I sat and watched it, you know, on the big screen, and it, which was the first time I saw the movie <laughs> since 1988. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I <laughs> had to sit there and watch it, which I, I enjoyed it, but the it's very hard to to watch, you know, just to see what you've done in the past. But don't you
0: like? I used to have a hard time watching myself do stand up, which it was obviously different. But as time has gone on, I realized, like when I watched the things I'm like, well, that was a pretty good, I, you know, I was me. That's a good representation of what I do. Yeah. I've evolved that obviously, but you know, I, I don't have to hate it. Right. But you don't hate yeah. your movies. Right. You just, no,
1: no, no, I don't. I, I just, uh, I figure I can, I've there's, I can s- use that time better by switching to another channel.
0: That's he's the That's the other guy I, that I couldn't think of. It's De Niro Pacino and Hoffman. Those yeah. were the guys. Those were the, that generation of method movie stars
1: and they're all totally different they are how they pro- how they go about things, yeah I mean uh, Dustin is uh is, is a character into himself you know in uh-huh. another place and and uh, the uh, and you have to figure out and, and part of the fun of of of, uh, of the process is figuring certain things out like very early on, um, just remembering this is so long ago but we're doing this scene. Uh, oh, you worked with both uh, of them
0: in Wag the Dog. I just re- realized that. Yes, yeah. we're both were in Wag the Dog. Yeah,
1: and uh, but I just tell you one quick scene yeah. with with it becomes a character moment is on um, Rain Man. He's sitting with Tom Cruise and in this little coffee shop, and I said to uh, Dustin, I said, uh, you know, the character. This is very early on, like day one, day two, somewhere in there. Yeah. Uh, I said, the character seems too depressed to me, you know, and I said, you know, you've seen, you know, from all the research about autistics, they're busy. They're busy. Like, you know, they'd be looking up at the ceiling They're How many tiles? How many of this? You know, they're, they're looking. They're, they're, they're active. They're not just sitting depressed. He said, OK, all right. So now we got to do the take again. <laughs> and now he's looking up. He's involved. Oh, it's going great. Now, now Tom's talking to him. Uh, Ray, do you want to so and so? And he doesn't respond. Ray, do you want to so? Then I all right, cut. I said, Dustin, he's he's talking to you. You're supposed to say, you know, uh, you, you have to respond to him. He said, Yeah, but I got so involved with the tiles and the ceiling that I, didn't, I wasn't paying attention to him. I, I said, Well. I said, if you're going to do that, we're going to have a very serious problem with this movie. You, you have to be able to acknowledge him at some point in time, you know, not right away, but you have to acknowledge him, you know. Yeah. I, but I got involved. And so if you watch the movie, I said, think of it this way. You're, you're, you're busy with the tiles and the ceiling and you're counting them, etc. but you can hear him. You know, you can hear him. So you can just maybe just going, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and but you're busy, but yeah, yeah. And so when do we do that? Now we did it and it was great and that worked. And then that's if you ever watch the film, it's all through the film. Yeah, that's you know? the device. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that became the whole thing because he got so involved in whatever he was in, looking at that he was no longer in the scene. And so you have to find a way
0: to So that was those years are him coming back to reality.
1: Yeah. 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 You're holding him off. You don't want to pay attention until you really realize what it is. He wants, then it's like now
0: and that no. and that and he was able to integrate into the, that into the character because it made sense to him.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, so that was that, like the hook be, of the
0: movie. That was that yeah. was the impression that people did. And that.
1: Yes, exactly. And that became thing. Now it's accidental. And it's because he of that. But I'm saying that's what that's what happens with film, with characters yeah. that you're working with, is that you have to find a way. To, you can't just say no, you can't do it. You have to say this, and then it's more mechanical. But this became something that we didn't. I didn't know that it was. But as it went along, you went, oh yeah, yeah, look, it can work here. It'll work
0: here. It's like the key. It's like the key to the guy. The element. That was a key. A, yes. Yep. <laughs> that and was... you
1: stumble on it. And you stumble on it. It's not in the script. It just becomes that's that. That's amazing. And that's part of the discovery and the fun of it when you're open enough to see where it's going to take you. Yeah. You know, you're never sure, but you got you to explore it. Otherwise, you're going to go, that, that, then it's just by the numbers. And, and in the end of the day, with a film, we respond to certain things about character, and that's become so important. It's the character that carries the day. yeah. And so that's, that's what happened.
0: But it's interesting that all those movies, you know, all these moments, in at least in the few movies of yours that we, you know, talked about in depth, where, you know, at least in Diner and in Rain Man, and uh, that these moments that become signature moments are exactly that, those Marty moments, you know? Really? Yeah. yeah. Even in, in Justice for All, you have sort of, yeah, yeah. What are you going to do, Marty? What do you want to do, Marty? And like, you know, you can eat that? I'm not comfortable with the word nuance. Whatever it is, you know, these are like, they they would be passing moments, you know. Yes. If they weren't. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And but, then
1: they become crucial and that becomes what an audience or for connects to. Yeah. You know? yeah, And, 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 and even with Robin,
0: just, you know, the Good Morning Vietnam thing. Did that guy actually say it like that or was that a Robin thing? Good
1: morning. I'm not sure. Vietnam. I can't remember anymore. Hey. I don't know if he quite did it the same way, but I think he did you know, something in that ballpark. Yeah.
0: I was just thinking about Chayefsky again. When was the last time you watched the movie Hospital?
1: It's funny you said because it's one of my favorite movies. That, that scene in the that scene in the beginning about um uh about you know that he's dead, you know. Yeah. So and so's dead in the bed Dr. and whatever. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, what do you mean he's dead? Yeah. He's the a, a and So, you know, and that 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 little run in the beginning of uh, of that film is yeah. extraordinary.
0: Yeah. I, uh, I just watched it again. It is. It is one of the darkest satires that was made at that time. Yeah. Because it, it yeah. is a satire, you know,
1: but it starts with that thing, you know, so so and so in room 103 and whatever. <laughs> and he's dead in that whole. And what do you mean? He's that that whatever that oh, that run is. And yeah. I can't even paraphrase it right now. Dr. Schaefer.
0: <laughs> Our doctor <chief>.
1: yeah. <laughs> And then George C. Scott comes in and is finally saying something like, "Where do you train your 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 nurses?" The doc cow,
0: yeah, <laughs> <Dachau>. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> priceless. Yeah, that movie, that movie, I can watch over and over. When Chayefsky had moments in certain movies, it just, it, it just, the the dialogue just shines in a in a in a way that. Is so amazing, yeah. That's so character-driven. Those kinds of moments,
0: even in network, dude. The, the, I mean, the Ned Beatty monologue in Network is crazy. But yeah. I, again, that moment that grounds it, and the moment that that he does that resonates with you, where 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 Finch looks up at him and goes, "Why are you telling me this?" And he goes, "Because you're on <laughs> TV, dummy." <laughs> but it, and then, like Finch yeah. is, "Oh, I've seen the face no, no. of God."
1: Yes, yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. And what's so great about it is, if in talking about television, and he's t- talking about the influence of television, right? Right. And but it, there's that
0: moment where he's going, "You have meddled with the primal forces," and then he then he stops and goes, "Am I getting through to you?" You like that? <laughs>
1: <laughs> like he
0: stops the pitch to go like, yeah. "Oh, that's great, yeah. man." It's great shit.
1: I mean, look, television is one of the, uh, the forces that has changed mankind in, in ways that we still have yet to understand. I mean, even going back to uh, talking about, you know, uh, Stars and Strife and everything else in terms of the world that we live in today, yeah. television, television's influence is so gigantic in terms of it has shaped everything and certainly in terms of politics because politics is all based on television
0: it seems to me that that you know outside of whatever experience you had in in the slow build to uh you know becoming the writer and then the director it seemed like you know that the future was sort of laid out for you in that control room in baltimore
1: in, in that essence, true, but you can't see it in advance. I mean, you know, you can't you can't go. Oh, here we go. Yeah.
0: I mean, just the puppet experience alone, and the you know realizing how things fit <laughs> together, and then you know troubleshooting when you you don't even have to. I mean, that moment where the guys like uh, we're n- now we're going to show you the beginning of the movie. I mean, you know, that's a that's an important lesson to learn. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, it's a, you know, no, 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 it's fun because you know if you go all the way back to Ranger Hal. Right. wherever oh, that the, was
0: a local a local uh, uh yeah. children's show?
1: Yeah, yeah, nine to ten. Yeah. And you you would do the hand puppets and and I I, I it, it seems odd to say this, but you know, the idea I was doing the hand puppets and we would play like a Beatles song. Yeah. And they they had never done that, you know, and right. I had Marvin monkey, you know, is Ringo Starr playing, you know, the drums and things, you know, (laughs) you make up (laughs) some crazy stuff, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Full full creative freedom. Yes. It's whatever you can figure
1: out to go do. And you grab some stuff and you try different things and uh, some stuff, you know, actually got a little attention, you know, but uh, it, it was like, what would you do here? You got some puppets, you know, little hand puppets. What can you do with them? And then you start to figure out, but well, this might be fun.
0: Yeah. And then those puppets you know? become, you know, Pacino and De Niro and Hoffman. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's good.
0: You, you did good. You did all right for yourself. You, you, you're dealing with top-notch puppets now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. hadn't thought of it in those terms. <laughs>
0: It was great great talking to you, Barry. Uh, It's fun. Yeah, man. Take care of yourself.
1: Thank you very much.
0: All right. What a great... That was great. I enjoyed that immensely. Uh, Again, his documentary that he produced, Stars and Strife, is now available on most video-on-demand platforms, and it just started running this week on Stars. I wish I'd remember that Craig T. was had a big part and in, in Justice for All, before I watched it the other night, after I talked to Barry. We could have talked a little bit about that, but he must have gotten that gig, right? Here's a little guitar for you. It picks up. It picks up towards the end. It picks up. Here we go. fonder of the flying feline angels) <laughs>